Canadian participation and cultural production about the Spanish Civil War. I'm your host, Karina Mickelson, and I'm here with Kevin Levangie. Hello. And today we're going to talk about camps throughout the 1930s and around the Spanish Civil War. And Kevin, where are we? Right now, we are in the same room, which is we're in unheard the same of. Room. <laughs> I didn't even know that was allowed. Yeah. Kevin moved to Halifax, and we're all super excited about it. Well, this is the first time we've ever been in the same place for any sustained period of time. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Of, like a couple of conferences. So. Yeah, so our recording quality will hopefully be much better. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. No gar- Toronto garbage trucks going by my old apartment. Yeah. <laughs> Although this room, this building's still pretty uh, noisy and echoey. So today we're going to talk about several different kinds of camps that Spanish Civil War volunteers might have moved through. We'll start by talking about the relief camps that Canada set up during the 1930s to house unemployed, mostly single men. And then we're going to talk about prisoner war camps, briefly about disciplinary camps in Spain that some of the international brigades would found themselves in. And then I kind of go on a little bit of a digression about camps that other Spanish Republicans found themselves in, both in France and then later in Austria. The relief camp system, or at least the federal relief camp system, came into being in October 1932 uh, through an order in council of Prime Minister Arby Bennett's cabinet. Uh, Relief projects were built under provincial authority as early as 1930, but this was the first attempt to address the problem of unemployment brought on by the Great Depression at the federal level. The Unemployment Relief Scheme, as it was called, was meant to house 2,000 men at any given time. By 1933, though, it housed 11,000 single unemployed men across the country. This is obviously of interest to us here at the Canada and Spanish Civil War Project for a couple of reasons. It gives a little more context about the social, economic, and political conditions in Canada during the 1930s. And as you might imagine, unemployed, single, and somewhat rootless young men were more likely to volunteer to go to Spain than those who were well-heeled, married, and firmly settled. I like the term well-heeled. Yeah, I, was, I wasn't I was entirely sure if I should include it, but you know. Yeah. I, <laughs> I imagine shoes. you wouldn't be well-heeled after marching around looking for work. No, and, and <laughs> shoes come up so frequently they in do. all of these accounts. In, yeah, in all of these camps, too. This is where it gets a little complicated, because there are a couple of different ways of characterizing the relief camps. You can always emphasize the idea that it was a social program, maybe a little paternalistic, but it provided needed relief for people with few other options. You can also see it as a repressive scheme, in their own words, by the Canadian state (laughs) that was technically voluntary, but had the practical effect of policing and interning unemployed men. The men were free to come and go, and many did. But there's some caveats to that freedom, which will come up later. This isn't the first time that Canadians use the technology of concentration or internment camps either. The history of forcible mass confinement of Indigenous people in reserves, especially through the PASS system, is obviously the most prominent example. And as I understand that, that would mean that they would have to have a signed PASS or a a PASS authorized by the Indian agent that allowed them to leave the reserves at any given time. So there's a good episode of the now CBC-produced podcast, The Secret Life of Canada. I didn't know it was on CBC. Yeah, they, awesome. they just got picked up. Called The Secret Life of Banff. It details the imprisonment of Ukrainian Canadians and others designated enemy aliens during the First World War in what would become the national parks. The location is no coincidence. It was the forced labor of the imprisoned Ukrainian Canadians that built the national park. Uh, this is a little little bit of a digression, but it is it is interesting to see the ways in which some really prominent national symbols in Canada are actually closely associated with internment camps. We can say that the, the Stetson 
and the Strathcona boots, both, both of which are articles of clothing we associate with the RCMP, were actually introduced into the Canadian like military uh, repertoire during the, the Boer War, uh, a war in which the British rounded up the families of the Boer insurgents in South Africa and imprisoned them in concentration camps, mm-hmm. a really kind of cruel example of collective punishment, and, and it's often cited as one of the first appearances of, of concentration camps in the world. Um, and yeah, there's obviously not a one-to-one comparison between these relief camps in Canada and the other internment camps that we've mentioned here. But I think it's useful to think of them all as uh, examples of the state managing populations that were considered excess or disloyal through displacement and internment. And in many of the cases, benefiting from the labor of these managed populations, right? That's a really interesting question about the way in which certain populations are allowed, allowed to work Mm-hmm. or forced to work and then others aren't allowed to work. Yeah, I feel like the Japanese Canadians weren't put to work in the same ways. I don't think so. And, and typically, settler colonial studies talks a lot about how, in, in most cases, indigenous populations that are being managed by like settler colonies aren't allowed to be like economically productive according mm-hmm. to like settler standards. They're, yes. they're forced to be kept apart from that. It's really just kind of an interesting... Yeah, there's a lot of concerted effort in colonialism at stopping certain populations, non-white populations, from accumulating wealth. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking about how during Japanese internment, their possessions were taken, including boats that were their livelihoods. Many Japanese Canadians were fishermen, fisher people, fished. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But also uh, there were rules uh, in laws of Nova Scotia, as well as I'm sure other places that prohibited Indigenous people from passing down property to their children, including right. businesses, which is really, really terrible when right. I think about it, like, that the state would reabsorb all of this right. property and all of these means of livelihood, and they were denied populations that they didn't want to succeed, right? Like, but they had a vested interest in them not succeeding. Absolutely. Well, and just that you always hear that, you know, private property is, like, sacrosanct in yeah in settler colonies in particular, but it's only sacrosanct if it belongs to certain people. Yeah. So. One book we looked at preparing for this episode was by Aidan Forth. So he's written about the history of disciplinary and segregation-based camps in his book, Barbed Wire Imperialism, Britain's Empire of Camps, 1876 to 1903. So obviously the 1930s relief camps fall outside of his kind of area and time. But he does write about how camps, including the relief camps, I believe, emerged within a carceral archipelago of prisons, workhouses, factories, and hospitals that organized 19th century people and places. So the motives that he associates with camps that really make sense when we're talking about the relief camps are a fear of the rootless and mobile. So he talks about how there was a fear of the rootless and mobile that was deeply ingrained in Western political culture, and a liberal equation of property with rights served to criminalize poverty over the course of the 19th century. And to this end, proliferating vagrancy laws reflected anxieties about itinerant poor. So Canada had vagrancy laws in effect during the 1930s, and many of the Spanish Civil War volunteers had criminal records that included charges for vagrancy. But the fear of unemployed men's mobility is particularly interesting in this time period, because on the one hand, each level of government had an interest in keeping men on the move. So if the men moved on from a certain city to the next, or from the one province to another, then the local, regional, or provincial government wouldn't be responsible for them, in theory. But the men had to go somewhere, so their mobility also posed a threat. 
So Forth argues that camps worked as a preventive measure because spatial exclusion would purify society by removing populations for the potential threat they posed. And Barbara Janis writes that by 1932, the federal government in Canada feared that the swelled ranks of 70,000 unemployed transients posed a threat to public order and could even ignite a communist revolt. Today, people occasionally will we'll try to say that the relief camp system was largely concerned with the welfare of the men who occupied it, or primarily concerned with the welfare of the men who occupied it. But the origins of the camps kind of belied the truth about them. They were more stick than they were carrot. They were a repressive measure against uh, the working class proposed by R.B. Bennett's military advisor, Major General A.G.L. McNaughton. And McNaughton was explicit about the repressive function of the camps when he was advising R.B. Bennett. So during the Great Depression in 1933, as we said, there were 70,000 uh, transient men in Canada without work and an estimated 100,000 homeless people oh, across wow. the country. And at peak in this period, 30% of the country was unemployed. So McNaughton said specifically of the, the transient men, in their ragged platoons, here are the prospective members of what Marx called the Industrial Reserve Army, the stormtroopers of the revolution. McNaughton also said, by taking the men out of the cities, we are removing the active elements on which the red agitators could play. Sometimes I want to laugh at this kind of rhetoric, but then we do talk about, and you will talk about later, how organized these men became as right. agitators mm-hmm. and as socialist communist forces. So he was right. <laughs> he, was, he was. And I always, I always get a kick out of any someone who's like very clearly allying themselves with the ruling class, but like quoting radicals. <laughs> yeah. and knows his marks, yeah. knows his enemies. <laughs> it's like a car- cartoonishly bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> Monologuing about how he's going to take care of all these yeah. men. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So the, the thing that, that we're talking about here too is that this plan here by McNaughton actually backfired. MacPap Ron Liversedge really disagreed with McNaughton's assessment, saying, quote, in those bunkhouses, there were more men reading Marx, Lenin, and Stalin than there were reading girly magazines. So the camps ultimately kind of functioned as a, as a way of radicalizing a great deal of, of kind of hopeless drifters, I guess you could say. Yeah, so that kind of shows the danger in the way they chose to address this threat. So they kind of perceived it as a threat of like, okay, we can isolate this potentially radical population from the general population. But then you are concentrating them, right? And exposing men who weren't necessarily radicalized to men who are very radicalized and giving them infinite time. The initial wave of the unemployed relief scheme focused on repairing the citadels at Quebec and Halifax and clearing land for airports elsewhere. Uh, There were 123 distinct projects undertaken by the scheme, with most requiring one camp per project, except the highways, which needed more. So the, the magic number is 170,248 men spent time at the camps, although many went through multiple times under assumed names after being kicked out or, mm-hmm. or moving along. So we don't actually know what the, the real number was of, of men at the camps, but the average length of stay for men in these camps was 107 days. And though the wages were poor and the conditions weren't great, the admission process was actually uh, fairly rigorous. And numerous men were turned away because they were physically incapable of the hard labor required for them. Oh yeah, and that comes up in one of the camps in Northern Ontario that there's a very meticulous article written about where men will be turned away for being not physically fit, right. but then would just come back and come back um, because they still had nowhere to go, right? That if this welfare scheme wasn't going to address the people who were the least well, right. it wasn't really succeeding. Yeah. Generally, the camps gave the men 20 cents a day. Yep. And the government argued that this was a 
stipend, an allowance, yeah. and not a wage. But many people dispute this because men weren't necessarily paid on days that it rained or days that they weren't supposed <laughs> to be working. So it wasn't an allowance that was like not contingent on their labor. It was contingent on their labor. But I think somewhere else it says that an expected wage for a skilled laborer was 45 cents an hour. comes up in the list of demands later. So that's just an indication of how little money they were getting if, if yeah. you can expect to get more than twice as much as an hourly rate, and then instead you're getting that as a daily. Yeah, and one of the complaints was that they could in no way save money for the future or mm-hmm. save money in a way that could prepare them to go out and look for actual work. Right. Yeah, and that was, yeah, we talked about that a little bit later, but just how demoralizing. Yeah. It was to be in this camp with no meaningful work and no prospect of advancement whatsoever. You're not you're not being trained for another job. You're not being even like allowed to go outside and look for other work. And if you want to see a parallel today, we can talk about all the labor that people in prisons do right. at very, very low wages and how much they are charged for things like stuff from commissary, mm-hmm. goods from commissary, but also for phone calls. If you want to read about that, you can check out L. Jones writing on the Halifax Examiner and I can link to some of her work on that because there's companies that profit and Canadian government I'm sure as well profits off of prisoners labor and prisoners do not benefit in any substantial way from it. Right yeah and and that's another we we talk about this maybe almost too much but the (laughs) the fact that you know in, in a Canadian context you often think of you compare it to the the conditions in the states where like it is literally legalized slavery in prisons based on like constitutionally but canada you know still has a pretty miserable prison labor system even if it's not yeah literally legalized slavery yeah and even if like we don't have companies who are hiring out prisoners to do their work like i'm pretty sure victoria's secret and starbucks do in the states um in canada bell as the phone company profits so much off of prisoners and prisoners' families. Right. Anyways, we'll link yeah. to more about that. For sure. It's a little bit of a digression, but not really. <laughs> We've been known to digress. Uh, it's called context. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's it. Um, yeah, so what we were saying is even though the admission process was was you know rigorous in terms of not allowing in uh, men who were sick or incapable of, of labor, uh, 237 men died in the relief camps. I don't have a, a breakdown of whether that was mostly like workplace accidents or whether it was from you know sick or, or what the conditions were, but it's uh, it's a, quite a high number. What we what we do know about about the projects is that it was really regionally specific in a lot of senses. So BC had the most projects. I, had, I don't see this cited anywhere uh, in in the reading that I've done, but I do know that BC also had the most like transient men. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's you know if you've read one novel about the 1930s. <laughs> yeah. It's probably Steinbeck and you know that people were going to the west coast of North yeah. America to look for work and, and to find like warmer temperatures and that sort of thing. Yeah, go towards agriculture, there's a lot of industry, fishing, but also warm. Yeah. yeah. And you see repeatedly in the, the conversations in Vancouver among government leaders and stuff, people are constantly saying, these these men are from the east, like send yeah. them home, like these, send aren't them our, home. Yeah, these aren't our problem. Blah, yeah. Blah. And, uh, yeah, so but nobody wanted them back. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. And BC had the most projects, uh, 53, made up of 101 camps with more than 60,000 workers over the life of the effort. In the West, the majority of the camps were assigned to building highways, which explains why there were so many of them, because you needed several camps to build mm-hmm. one highway. And this was largely because these relief camps were actually, had formerly been run by the province, and then the, the same work was picked up by the uh, 
the federal government. One of the things that super surprised me when I started to learn about relief camps was that there was a relief camp on Citadel Hill in the middle of Halifax. So even though I've taught the history of Citadel Hill in classes, and I read widely about unemployment and relief during the 1930s, I didn't learn about this Citadel Hill relief camp until I read The Halifax Hunger Fighter, which was a leftist newspaper from the Great Depression. So The Hunger Fighter ran for 18 issues in 1933. It was a very short, small, pretty shoddy paper, <laughs> but it tells us about the relief camp. There's several articles that cover the goings on there. In July 1933, the hunger fighter reported that workers leaving Citadel Hill were being refused clothes based on a government order. So this was an issue in many relief camps. Men were given work clothes when they arrived, and that was important because these men arrived with clothes that were not wearable, especially for heavy labor. But when they left the relief camp, they were expected to leave those assigned work clothes behind. But they didn't have clothes, sufficient clothing, to make a proper outfit to leave with. And as the hunger fighter points out, they couldn't have been expected to save money to buy clothes at 20 cents a day. So that's one of the concerns they raise. In August, the hunger fighter reported complaints from people living on McNabb's Island, which is in Halifax Harbor. Typically, these people relied on summer income doing road work for the militia department. But in 1933, the people did not receive this work because the men from Citadel Hill were assigned the work instead. So the relief camp workers received 20 cents a day to perform work that the inhabitants of McNabb's Island would be paid 45 cents an hour to do. And the hunger fighter complained about the government using the unemployed to scab the employed. And the hunger fighter committed space both in the paper and in the community to hear and support the relief camp workers. In September, the hunger fighter published a long article about the camp titled Citadel Hell Camp. This article appropriates the language of slavery to describe the camp conditions, and it's kind of comparison that makes me very uncomfortable, especially given Halifax's history of exploiting black refugees and immigrants. So this is specifically for Citadel Hill. Citadel Hill was also built by migrant black labor. We'll link to an article about the Maroons who performed that work. That kind of metaphor of the relief camp residents as slaves makes me a little uncomfortable. <laughs> but the hunger fighter does argue that the relief camps are bad for the relief camp workers and for the workers outside the camp who cannot survive on such meager wages and who see their jobs taken away. They also complain that men are not allowed to leave the camp to look for work or even to take on temporary work contracts because they will not be allowed back into the camp. Um, and the hunger fighter invited relief camp workers to send in letters about the conditions in the camp but as this was the second last issue of the newspaper, such letters were never published. The last issue of the Halifax Hunger Fighter was published in September 1933 and ended with a recipe for Mexican beans. <laughs> and we, we looked it up, it's, it looks pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I would try it. I haven't been able to find out much more about the Citadel Camp, like how long it operated and what labor the men performed, and maybe that's gonna take some digging in some local archives. And I've not had time for that yet. <laughs> Once where it says they rebuilt the Citadel, Just but I, don't know, it. Yeah. I don't know what exactly that would entail. But. <laughs> but one of the things that's really interesting about this camp is that it was located right in the middle of the city. And maybe the Quebec Citadel is one of the other examples of that. But that was very unusual. Yeah. The hunger fighter was able to leave copies of the paper at the gates of the camp and hear from camp residents. And though there were rules around leaving and returning to the camp, I imagine there was a lot more engagement with the local community than other camps had. So most of the camps were very isolated. 
far from urban centers or even smaller communities. And this isolation was one of the major complaints of the camp workers and also posed a logistical challenge in terms of maintaining supplies, which led to more complaints from workers. So one very isolated camp was project number 51 on Lac Seau in Northern Ontario. Uh, Laurel Sefton McDowell has written a long and detailed article about this camp. She tracks its establishment, its management, its residents, and the many reports of illness, injury, and discipline over the years that it operated, and its general failure to accomplish any of the work it set out to. So she notes that occasionally a man broke down emotionally and was diagnosed as mentally ill. Nowadays, this isn't particularly surprising, as we know a lot more about the prevalence of mental illness, but back, back then, this mental illness was likely related back to the effects of isolation. The residents of Laxel were so unhappy about the isolation that they would often walk the 30 miles to the railway in order to reach Winnipeg. During winter, the camp was particularly hard to reach, and there were periods every year between fall and freezing or during the spring thaw when the camp was totally unreachable. Sometimes food would arrive already spoiled and would be fed to the men anyways. <laughs> the only nearby community was a First Nations reserve and the project was very much a burden on this reserve. The project may have involved displacing many of the reserve's residents and several men were disciplined for breaking into First Nations houses and stealing from the residents. Laxil was one of the only and perhaps the only camp to house Chinese workers. These workers were segregated within the camp and were assigned to work in the kitchen and laundry. 28 of these Chinese workers, of which I think there are maybe 30-something, were engaged in a strike in 1934 when they alleged racism in the distribution of food. So McDowell provides many other details about how the Lac Seau project operated, but across the 123 projects in Canada, conditions varied a lot. Something that comes up a lot is that if you had a, a good cook and a properly furnished uh, bunkhouse, you could eat and sleep reasonably well. But if you had a dishonest store clerk, a cruel or incompetent camp foreman, or received poor rations, conditions could be miserable. The reason I bring up the properly furnished bunkhouse is a number of them didn't have stoves and that sort of thing. Like it was bad enough in the summer, but you can only imagine in the winter. Yet numerous participants emphasized, though, that it wasn't specifically the conditions that were the main motivator for their agitation. It was the sense that they were being given busy work and because they had uh, very few prospects of getting anything better. Uh, the famous labor organizer Arthur Slim Evans uh, said in an interview years later, what we were mainly concerned with is the hopelessness of life. It's the hopelessness of life these people are kicking about, not the camp conditions. Uh, later, a government commission established after the uh, relief camp strikers occupied Vancouver. This report mostly approved of the conditions of the camps, but noted that the extremely poor wages meant the men could not support themselves to look for real work. And it meant that the men, quote, drifted into either an attitude of hopeless indifference or of studied rebellion. So as I referenced above, they certainly entered into a studied rebellion. Camps in the West were the most rebellious, and out of the 359 strikes, riots, and disturbances recorded by the Department of National Defense in the camps, 160 were in British Columbia. Some of these disturbances were no doubt spontaneous reactions to the dismissal of friends, the shortages of food, clothing, or tobacco. But much of the agitation grew out of the work of the Relief Camp Workers' Union, a group with somewhat obscure origins. The RCW may have been founded in BC Provincial Relief Camps in 1932. What we do know is that an organization called the Relief Camp Workers' Union asked for affiliation with the Communist-led Workers' Unity League in 1933 and with the WUL resources and experience, it quickly grew. Victor Howard writes the relationship between the WUL and the camps. 
With the designation of the Unemployed Relief Scheme in 1932, the Workers' Unity League found an opportunity for recruitment, which even in its most blessed dreams it could not have invented. (laughs) Hundreds and then thousands of unemployed men conveniently isolated in camps with infiltration by covert organizers remarkably easy. (laughs) So it's out of this environment that the uh, On to Ottawa trek grew, which is probably the most famous example of agitation in 1930s Canada, I would say. Yeah. This is, I keep coming back to this, but like most demonstrations that have the aura of spontaneity, as uh, some left-wingers will say, <laughs> the, the trek was actually well-planned and preceded by several similar but smaller marches and walkouts, including the April 4th, 1933 strike that saw around 1,400 men travel to Vancouver. They were demanding a number of things, uh, 50 cents an hour for unskilled work and union wages for skilled workers, guaranteed six-hour days with a minimum 20 work days a month, that the Department of National Defense end all involvement in the camps, that the workers be given the right to vote, that the camp workers be covered by workers' compensation, the institution of a non-contributory system of unemployment insurance, and the repeal of Section 98 of the Criminal Code and what they called other anti-working class legislation. So I think that's that's pretty interesting. That's definitely not a bunch of guys who threw down their tools and then walked out. They... A non-contributory system of unemployment insurance, like that's not even something we have now. No. no. Yeah, and they were they were demanding like yeah the repeal of Section ninety eight, which was the mm. anti anti communist uh, legislation. They also wanted some changes to the immigration system in Canada, which I think is really interesting. That would be yeah. worth kind of looking into further because often often <laughs> organi- historically organized labor has demanded fairly awful things uh, in terms of immigration. I know mm-hmm. people were there's a, a recent book that came out. I think the called The History of, of America and Ten Strikes, and it it's, makes it very clear that the first kind of win by organized labor in the United States was passing of a like anti-Chinese immigration act. Mm-hmm. This April 4th strike led to the relief camp strikers spending two months in Vancouver. They were governed by a well-organized strike committee that provided meal vouchers purchased with public donations. The committee made sure the men were organized into divisions and that discipline was maintained. They appointed press liaisons, reached out to other left-wing organizations and unions. Demonstrations were organized, including a march of nearly 16,000 strikers and supporters. And local unions continued to pay to feed and house the strikers, especially the longshoremen. I think it was the boilermakers also donated a a fair bit of money. And the ongoing threat of a citywide general strike kept the authorities on their toes. And it would have been a solidarity strike with the, Mm -hmm. the relief camp workers. And though in the end, only the longshoremen went out, and it was on the same day that the strikers were leaving the city, but still that was really terrifying, the idea that the, the unemployed and the employed would get together to yeah. demand uh, political changes. Instead of being pitted against each other. Right, yeah, <laughs> like... exactly. The, rather than this man's going to take your job. Yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, this, this man deserves Well, especially if they are doing, like, low-paid labor, mm-hmm. like, as the Halifax Hunger Fighter says... The government is making it so this man takes your job. Yeah. So how about you support it? Right, right. Yeah, the reserve army of the unemployed. Yeah, sort of the thing. reserve yeah. army. It's funny, the term army of unemployed comes up so much. Mm-hmm. And usually it's, usually I think it's used to signify how many people there were. Like, right. right, the mass. Right. But it also can come off as fearful. They could be a radical army right. of unemployed. But also, like, McNaughton also sees it as, like, this is a potential army. By 1933, the Halifax hunger fighter is seeing war on the horizon. Like, right. they're writing about it. So by this time, people are like, there's a war coming. We want people who are disciplined, right. are 
ready to work. Mm -hmm. So the fact that these camps are often run by the Department of National Defense is pretty interesting. And that's a recurring worry of the the, the men themselves. They're, mm -hmm. they're concerned that they're being put into like military-style discipline in order to be used as soldiers in the yeah. future. So yeah, after, after two months and with conditions and morale rapidly deteriorating in Vancouver, the strikers decided to head for Ottawa to make their demands known. During this period, nearly half of their original number had left the city and returned to the camps or headed elsewhere. So this is this is where the, the actual onto Ottawa trek starts, and it, it's a pretty remarkable story. It's kind of outside the scope of, of what we're talking about here today. But, yeah, um, maybe we'll do an episode on it in the future. Yeah, definitely. But it's but, worth looking into. Yeah, and there are also a thousand things you can read about it. Yeah. That's an exaggeration, but there's like... 10 books on this book mm -hmm. desk right now that you can read about. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> My, I think I would recommend the Ron Liversedge mm -hmm. uh, book, Recollections of the Onda Ottawa Trek. Which, As a first-person account? Yeah, and he's also been praised by particularly Victor Howard, or Victor Hoare, for just like his, his memory, mm -hmm. even 25 years later when he was writing this, is apparently super accurate. Like He remembers yeah. people's names, he remembers the dates that things happened. And that wow. Sort of thing. I don't remember what I researched last we, week. We've been talking about that. <laughs> if I could remember where I put my notes, then yeah. I might be If you are more interested in fiction, I recommend The Time We All Went Marching by Arlene McNenny, uh, which is told from the point of view of a marcher's or striker's wife. It has some unreliable narrator stuff going on in there, so it's not like the most reliable text, but it's fiction. But it is really interesting, and she definitely did do a lot of research, and it's a great way to get interested in the period I think. I always find my way into things through fiction. Yeah and the is it the Irene Howard is it? The uh, Irene Baird. Baird that's about so. a later strike yeah. but also very similar. Yeah so Irene Baird's novel Waste Heritage it picks up at the very end of the sit-down strike in Vancouver in mm -hmm. 1938. Right. It's a great book it was written at the time like 1939 it came out. And kind of in summary about these these relief camps it's interesting to note that while many of the occupants of the camps had been previously exposed to left-wing politics, many more hadn't. And the walkouts and the strikes organized by the RCWU helped to develop a political consciousness in the men who were more used to scraping by on their own than they were at organizing for better conditions. So it shouldn't be a surprise then that veterans of the Onda Ottawa Trek and these strikes were overrepresented in the ranks of the MACPAPs. Our records have evidence of 52 volunteers having participated in the trek, although the real number is certainly higher. Ron Liversedge, whose uh, memoirs of both Spain and the Onda Ottawa Trek laid a lot of the groundwork for these later studies, estimated that uh, 500 of the trekkers went on to fight in Spain. The number does seem a little high to me, given that there were at most 1,500 trekkers and, and mm -hmm. 1,600 volunteers in Spain. But yeah. anyway, certainly a lot. So that leads us into, I guess, an, another section here, talking about the camps that Canadians would be most familiar with in Spain. So the first one that comes up in I pulled a lot of this information here from Michael Petru's book, Renegades. These Republican disciplinary camps were where international volunteers that were considered deserving of punishment were sent. Often they were disciplined in their own units first, or and occasionally they were disciplined by serving time in a labor battalion, digging trenches. Canadian uh, Hugh Gardner spent some time digging trenches in no man's land, mm -hmm. uh, and he said that was ultimately uh, felt a lot like a death sentence when you're out there digging trenches while you're under fire. One volunteer was punished and I think sent to a disciplinary camp because he wouldn't send men out to do sentry duty when they didn't have shoes to wear. Right. So he got in trouble for like, I don't know, coddling his men or not following orders. 
Yeah. I've said this on Twitter, but I, there are very thing, few things I would do without shoes. <laughs> and fighting a war is <laughs> not one, one of them. So uh, I well, feel for them. Yeah, there are definitely there are accounts of particularly volunteers who had like really big feet having a lot of trouble. I remember uh. there was at least one one guy who spent most of the war with like basically bandages wrapped around his feet. Which is actually one of the complaints of the recent prison strike in Nova Scotia. Okay. The prisoners went on a strike at Burnside Correctional Facility, and one of their complaints was not being assigned clothing that fit them. You can read their demands on the Health Ex Examiner. Again, they do great coverage of prisoner rights in Nova Scotia. I can link to that. And in addition to being like practically a nuisance and, and difficult, it's it's just dehumanizing, right? Yeah, exactly. To wear clothing that doesn't fit you. And yes. Anyway, yeah, that's that's remarkable. So of of the Canadians who were disciplined in Spain, some would have ended up in prison camps or what they called prevention houses. The majority of Canadians who were sentenced to prolonged imprisonment, we have the names of at least 22, ended up at uh, Castillo de Fels, which was an old castle to the south of Barcelona and uh, used as a prison since April 1938. Others would have been imprisoned at the Carlos Marx prison and others at Camp Lukács or elsewhere. And we just had some great correspondence with an archaeologist in Spain who works on Castillo de Fels and has been writing about the prisoners or the international brigaders who passed through that prison. So that's some cool work to yeah. look forward to. So I guess the biggest problem with all of these, as you can see with all the different ways in which discipline could be carried out, one of the biggest problems was that disciplinary procedures had not been formalized at this point because mm. the, the Spanish Republican army was basically being built from the ground up because yeah. the, the fascists had taken the organized army with yeah. them. So the crimes that it saw internationals, especially, yeah, the International Brigades in particular was, was really hastily organized. So the crimes that saw the international sentenced to prison, the sentences were occasionally erratic and saw many men detained without trial. Hugh Garner has a story called the Red Retarians about a group of uh, volunteers who are taken, being taken to, I think, a disciplinary camp or being taken home because they've been disciplined. Mm-hmm. And he's definitely on their side. Yeah, that's uh, because he, <laughs> because he, he may he have deserted at some point. <laughs> yeah. I think he deserted a couple of times, but he always found his way back to the yeah. So. That's Yeah, that's another quick aside is that the in our records we have a few people who it mentions like tried for desertion, but we just we don't have any of the details about yeah. that. So I always feel I feel a little bad when you put in this information like you know saying someone deserted in March nineteen thirty eight. Yeah, I have no idea what happened like the yeah. context, but. Yeah, anyway, just always worth to kind of keep that in mind when you're reading through the database. One of the biggest issues with Castle de Fels was an investigation undertaken in, I think, October 1938 by Republican forces discovered that the commander of the prison there was abusing prisoners really badly, feeding them poorly and beating them. These stories of him spending the entire day at the beach only to come back and, and abuse prisoners are just kind of horrifying. Mm-hmm. And um, what is interesting... Petri talks about this in, in his book. We see this in this case is that the Republicans took this seriously enough that they were investigating it, and at least one of the two commanders of this prison had already fled to Paris, and the other one I think was arrested. Oh wow! Found with a whole bunch of gold and papers and things that he wasn't supposed to have. And mm-hmm. Basically, yeah, the, the conditions there were miserable. We're kind of pivoting here to talking about another place where the international volunteers found themselves imprisoned. And this was a, a fascist a prisoner of war camp. This was despite the fact that for most of the war, Franco's preferred policy was executing international volunteers when they were captured. So that was the fate that befell many of them. I, I don't have any stats on the Canadians, but yeah. the American prisoners of war, uh, Carl Geyser, who, who wrote a book about 
the Lincolns and specifically the, the Lincolns who were prisoners of war. He said that of the 287 Lincolns who were captured by the fascists, 173 were executed on the spot. Yeah, there's a story from uh, what I, how I would pronounce it is Jules Pavio, but uh, Karina was saying Hules. Ulis. Ulis. Ulis yeah. is Spanish, okay. So Ulis Pavio recounted the story of being lined up against a wall to be shot by a fascist firing squad, only to be saved by a passing fascist officer who seems to have heard about a change in policy concerning international prisoners. They were to be taken to prison camps instead of executed. So all kinds of other Spanish Republicans, especially actually people from Spain, weren't so lucky and they continued to be executed after capture. The Canadians who were captured mostly ended up at San Pedro de Cardena, a striking 15th century former monastery close to Burgos in central slash northern Spain. Though the conditions there were reprehensible, international volunteers from the various capitalist democracies, especially US, UK, Canada, that the fascists needed to avoid provoking, those volunteers had a much better time than the volunteers from fascist countries or countries occupied by fascist states. Mm-hmm. The, the German prisoners in particular were terrified of the Gestapo showing up, at which they apparently regularly did, and interrogated people, took them away. The Italian volunteers and the, the German volunteers, the Austrian volunteers, who I think are maybe some of the most like remarkable people I've ever read about, they all had a, a much more miserable time than the Canadians in the camps. Only two Canadians died in the camp, Frank Papp of pneumonia and Isaac Matson of cancer. Both were certainly negatively affected by the terrible quality of the food and the long-term caloric and vitamin deficiencies that they experienced while in these these prisoner war camps. So in in Petra's book, he notes that the commander of San Pedro stepped in and told his men not to physically abuse the prisoners, although they only listened in his presence. Beatings were a daily occurrence, and the food was nearly inedible. Still, the prisoners kept up their spirits with study classes, which included political and historical education, and the teaching of languages and math. It's, it's really the, the teaching of languages is really kind of amazing. The idea of all these volunteers from different parts of the world getting together and teaching you know, Spanish or teaching you know, Russian or whatever mm-hmm. else they, they had. Christmas 1938 saw the prisoners put on a variety show with a choir and a particularly well-received production of a slightly modified Barber of Seville. So it was a, it was a little anti-fascist, apparently. <laughs> I would love to hear the specifics of that. But, yeah. Although I only know the Barber of Seville from Bugs Bunny. Even the guards and the commander in attendance were impressed and apparently applauded a lot at the end. So yeah, we have a, a number of testimonials collected from the Canadians who were imprisoned mm-hmm. in San Pedro. So one of them is by Frank Blackman. Uh, my impressions of San Pedro de Cardenia. Liberty, at last, all that it means. For the present, one hates to think of the past. Yet to remove false impressions of conditions in the concentration camp is our first consideration for our comrades left in prison there. We arrived at night, hungry and exhausted from the journey. An old convent was to be our home for how long we knew not. Unloaded and searched, we passed under its grim portals, long corridors poorly lighted, the cement floor for a bed, our jackets for a covering. Later, we were issued old mattresses, blankets alive with lice and fleas. And so began an existence which I hope never to experience again. Poor food regimentations and beatings were things we had to endure for our whole stay there, the latter worsening with the arrival of three sergeants, sadists without a trace of humanity. We were at their mercy. Assured of some freedom at first in the grounds outside, these were a short-lived pleasure. Without is dirty and ragged, we looked a sorry lot. Forced to attend mass regardless of our beliefs, kneel or else, was their orders. 
The following is an ordinary day's experience. The first bugle blows one hates to get up, but into your rags and wait in line to use the lavatory. The second bugle and we are were given a label of bread and water soup flavored with garlic. Then drill for two hours or more, depending on the mood of the sergeants. After this, we were free to de-louse and walk around in a yard packed with men. Dinner between 12 and 2 and whenever the bread truck came, beans and sardines, day after day, one had heartburn continuously from so much starch, forced to eat out of old cans and rusty tin plates, didn't enhance the flavor any, inside during the afternoon too. Occupy ourselves as best we could sewing our clothes, a hopeless task, and playing such games as we could fashion from paper, wood, and cement. Never left to ourselves for any great length of time, but hats off and stand at attention when the sergeant entered. It kept one in a state of nervous tension, which drove one desperate. Several unsuccessful escapes were attempted, only one made it. Supper, beans, and fish. Many times I had to vomit after eating. Several men died. Poor comrades. Cancer, penicitis, rheumatism took their toll, buried in coffins made out of fish boxes. They rest in that unhappy land that more do not join them is the reason for condemning conditions there. Poor medical treatment, bad food, our bodies were covered with sores, some men so bad they can hardly walk. Though most of them are healed on us now, we are marked for life, with the scars left. We know not how they are faring, since we left the military censorship is rigid there. This article would not be complete were I not to mention the German Gestapo, that sinister, bloodthirsty organization, which continually plagued us, photographed in the nude, fingerprinted, measured in every conceivable manner, given Aryan racial tests so humiliating to a civilized man. One's blood boils to recall it. The Germans were sought out in particular by these people. Unfortunate people at the mercy of those vultures in the light of my experience there, I have exaggerated nothing. It is the duty of all liberty-loving people to protest again at this unfair treatment of prisoners of war. Frank Blackman. So this, this one is pretty standard in terms yeah. of it. It goes through, lays out the conditions of the imprisonment, the conditions of, of capture and that sort of thing. I should also say that the where he speculates about the Gestapo doing their, their experiments, it's not, we're not entirely sure who was actually doing the experiments. Petru doesn't think it was necessarily the Gestapo. He thinks it was probably this Spanish psychiatrist who was stationed at the prison camp. That's weird, though, because you think the men would know based on how they were spoken to, like yeah. what language or accent. Or maybe the experiments were carried out, but under somebody else's supervision. Yeah, I think so. And there was, so there was this one kind of famous or infamous, I should say, Spanish psychiatrist who was really invested in proving that all the international volunteers were, as I think he put it, lunatics and so on and so <laughs> forth. And, you know, oh yes, the you can tell that the the Marxist mind is has a low IQ, and mm. this was like really kind of interesting. So we we have another a really interesting PW account from Paul Scott or Paul Scup, uh, depending on what name he was going by. This <laughs> this is not the most standard of letters. Do you want to read this one too? April 8th, 1939. A year in fascist prisons, a year in hell. A year of hunger, of beatings, of terror, of filth. And yet a profitable year. During the 10 months in the concentration camp of San Pedro, and the 10 weeks in San Sebastian dungeons, we were studying, learning, preparing ourselves for the future, for the fight against our jailers, the fascists. I can write of terrible suffering, of inhumane treatment, and sadistic persecution. But doesn't the word fascism signify just that? Rather, I will use this opportunity to bring salute from the workers of Spain, from the Basques, from all the gallant anti-fascists with whom we came in contact. Franco has made a concentration camp of Spain. World fascism is boasting of victory, but when we remember our Spanish comrades, we know that the fight is still going on and will ultimately end in the victory of the working class. 
In Spain, there are still internationalist prisoners. Dungeons still contain and sticks bent over 400 comrades from all over the world, Germans, Polish, Scandinavian, Hungarian, Cuban, etc. They send their greetings with us and their hopes. That pressure from you will loose them so that they too may give the value of their experience to the progressive world. Paul Scott. And that's a super interesting one because it kind of gives us insight into why these testimonies were written, Mm -hmm. which we have not been able to figure out when, where, and why they were written. But there's the sense that they were trying to prove that these were badly run prisons, mm-hmm. that they were bad places to be, yeah. and that, that they were worth resisting. Right. Right? And and I think part part of it I think is that you see everyone's obviously invested in getting their former comrades out of <laughs> these prison camps. I, and I think the part of that's just like kind of the natural, well, if you were all in prison together, you would want everyone else to get out. But it, it does seem to me as if they were sort of instructed, like you should make sure that we focus on the guys who are still there. I think there's yeah. a certain amount of that. And of at this point, would there have been like world laws around the humane treatment of prisoners of war. Yeah, so I think that what was really important is that a lot of them were considered political prisoners rather than prisoners of war, right? And you could, oh, okay. you could effectively do whatever you wanted. You still can to your your own yeah. prisoners. It's not considered anyone else's. Like, the international community, as it, as it is, is not really in charge of how you treat your prisoners. But your prisoners of war are governed by, I, I believe, the Geneva Convention. The prisoners returned to Canada on May 6th, uh, 1939, just as the war was ending. As they note, other members of the International Brigades were still imprisoned at this point. Paul, it was Paul Scott who said that uh, Franco has made a concentration camp out of Spain. Mm-hmm. So at this point, so many Republicans in Spain, or just Spain, Spanish people who weren't fascist, would have been imprisoned. The historian Anthony Beaver estimates that between 380 and 500,000 people were imprisoned across 190 camps uh, just after the Spanish Civil War. Wow. And this was an important part of the, the social cleansing, as it was called, the, the regime went through after the war, killing hundreds of thousands of people who opposed fascist rule. Again, the numbers aren't entirely clear. You've seen 200,000, I've seen 400,000. Suggested Republican forced labor was also used to build huge infrastructure projects, most notably, or most topically, I guess I should say. This forced labor was used to build something called the Valley of the Fallen, which is a huge underground basilica where Franco's body was buried. The valley has been in the news recently as the Spanish government approved plans to remove Franco's body from the site and transform the complex into an interpretive center about the Spanish Civil War. Wow. Um, I did not know that. I had heard a little bit about that, but I didn't know that they had approved those. Wow. So there's still a lot. I think I think it's before the courts. I'm not entirely clear on how the entire process is, is working out. But it's been opposed by conservative parties in the legislature who harbor more than a few Francoist sympathies. And it's also been opposed by Franco's family. So if Francoist concentration camps awaited those who stayed in Spain, the fate of those who fled to France was in many cases worse. Throughout early 1939, about 465,000 people fled across the border into France, many being shelled and harassed by fascist planes during the trip. Some of these people were later accepted as refugees in Mexico, the Dominican Republic, or Chile. Some made it to the United States. Again, you, you will not be surprised to learn that the wealthier, like middle class, upper middle class people were the ones who managed to get like refugee status elsewhere. Yeah. And uh, the more working class people did not. More than half of these 465,000 people, about 268,000, were repatriated to Spain, mostly voluntarily. Most of, they didn't really have another option. They were given, you can stay in these camps or you can go back across the border. By December 1939, 182,000 refugees remained in France. 
so what's, what's interesting is that the former combatants who made the Girls of the Pyrenees weren't greeted as heroic anti-fascists or even as potential allies in the coming war with Germany, uh, necessarily. They were rounded up and imprisoned on camps on the south, in the southwest of France in horrible conditions. They were largely imprisoned on beaches with little protection from the elements. As a result, some volunteered to be repatriated to Spain, some to work on French farms or in factories, while others volunteered to join the French army when the Germans attacked in 1940. As a brief aside about these camps, we were talking earlier about these stories of if you laid down on a blanket on the beach, the sand was always wet, even if it looked dry, and you would want to avoid rolling over in the night because if you did, the wet side of the blanket would be exposed to the air and you would be way more likely to get pneumonia or get sick in some way. So it was really important that you stay like totally still while you were sleeping in these, in these camps if you wanted to, to stay healthy. Or those Spanish Republicans who volunteered to work in France had the best chance of escaping from custody. And some went on to become the famous uh, Spanish Maquis, the partisans who resisted first the Vichy mm-hmm. and uh, Nazi governments, and then later turned their attention to Franco's regime. That's like outside of the scope of what we talk about, but yeah. it's really interesting the way that they... In 1944, the war has moved off of French soil, and these people have started trying to like reinvade Spain. Maybe maybe if any of the listeners know about this, I was looking for like a general history of like partisan resistance mm-hmm. in World War Two, like yeah, just like across, across the board. countries. Yeah, yeah, but I couldn't I couldn't find anything. So if anyone knows of anything, that would be great. Like it's just a general introduction to all the various different countries and the way in which mostly civilians resisted yeah. would be great. I haven't gotten very far in it, but maybe Gord Hill's anti fascist comic book yeah. would be useful in that like, probably I'll be see. a good yeah. place to start. So many of the Spanish Republicans though were never released. Seven thousand ended up deported from France to the Nazi concentration camp in Austria, Mauthausen while others ended up in other camps. One source says that in 1941, 60% of prisoners in Mauthausen were Spanish, and the majority of them there were uh, worked to death or executed. It wasn't a death camp, but 5,000 of the 7,000 died. What's interesting is many of the accounts of what happened in Mauthausen, including a number of photographs and stolen official documents and files, were actually secretly preserved by the Spanish Republicans who have been credited as organizing some of the most effective resistance inside the camp. And that's, again, outside the scope of what we're really talking about today, but there's there's a lot written in kind of Holocaust studies about what to make of resistance inside camps and what, mm-hmm. how we should consider things that some people would consider collaboration, like people insert themselves into positions of authority within camps so that they like stay alive longer. Yeah. And that's can be considered uh, what David Wingate Pike, who wrote a book about called Spaniards in the Holocaust, he, he considered it like a moral struggle of efforts to save members of their of their own organization, yeah. to document conditions and uh, atrocities, and then keep up morale as well. So the, the Spanish Republicans were very effective at doing that. There's, there's another interesting thing that we found out from our friend, the... Spanish archaeologist. His I was reading his blog, and um, he's our friend now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> anyone who sends us an email is our friend. Is that how it works? <laughs> no, this <laughs> that's not true. Yeah. We could get. I've never gotten a mean email no. about this project. We've gotten close, oh. <laughs> close a couple times, but nothing. Uh, <laughs> We've gotten some emails that uh, we weren't didn't receive positively. <laughs> I do think I think there was once an email, or maybe maybe it was a suggestion that Brad oh. got in person that there should be. That it's important to document, like, the fascists as well. I think Spanish somebody Civil. suggested that to me at Maybe DHSI. I think that yeah. was it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've received some negative tweets. 
But yeah. sorry, we're going. We are not just for the future reference. We are no fascists will be included in our <laughs> no. in our d- databases. But no. um, so I'm sorry, not sorry. <laughs> so there was yeah. There's an interesting article written on this blog. We can include a, a link in our uh, the episode description to a record, a like a musical record recorded, I think in 1965 by some Spanish survivors of Mauthausen who recorded the songs that they sang in the camp. And then they recorded it in France and released it as a record. Apparently it's, uh, you can listen to parts of it online. I haven't done that yet, but it seems nice. really interesting. So the non-combatants who made it across into France were overwhelmingly women and children. They were largely distributed around France in relatively small camps. The conditions of these camps were documented by the Canadian journalist Jean Watts, who was acting on behalf of the Canadian Committee to Aid Spanish Refugees. Uh, So she writes, Let me give you some examples of camps I've visited. Some are fairly good, some are horrible. But in every single one there is a crying need for supplies of one sort or another, which can be sent when there is money to buy them. In the town of Oloran, Landos, 600 people, more than 200 of them children, live in an old factory with rotting floors and holes in the roof. There is a little bit of ground around the factory, just mud, inside the high walls which surround it. Eight outdoor latrines, which are simply pits surrounded by a burlap curtain, serve the entire camp. The dining room is simply a roofed-over space in the yard without walls or floor, and it is often so cold that the families must take their food and eat it wherever they can find a corner. Washing facilities are a couple of taps which run into a ditch in the yard. The place has never been whitewashed and cannot possibly be kept clean. Almost everyone sleeps on loose straw on the floor, but a few have mattresses of sacking. Families of three and four sleep under a single blanket. There is no teacher, no school, no books. The whole atmosphere is appallingly demoralizing because of the cold, filth, and crowding. The Spanish nurse who was in charge of the camp appealed for material for the women to make up clothes for themselves and the children. Without a chance of clothing, she can make no headway against vermin and skin diseases. Watts elsewhere writes about how... The, the women in these camps can't do anything that makes it feel like home. And she includes in there, there's no chance of them cleaning or doing housework. Yeah. Which is, which is interesting because partly because Watts' beat, basically, while in Spain, was, was limited in a lot of ways by the Daily Clarion, it sounds like. And, mm-hmm. and she was assigned to things that were considered, you know, women's reporting. And often that ended up being, like, refugees and that sort of thing. Yeah. So taking that angle in this article of, of like writing home to try to appeal to a kind of middle class like almost bourgeois like ideas of of like gender roles and how you're supposed to be able yeah. to behave but then on the other hand we're also saying like if you literally have nothing to do at all you can't even you can't even make it a homey place yeah and being able to like see like seeing your children suffer and not being mm-hmm. able to help them mm-hmm. and that goes back to what we said about the relief camps about the prisoner strike here in Nova Scotia like the demoralizing and dehumanizing fact of not having proper clothing mm-hmm. and of always being cold and of just like how prevalent vermin and lice are like just the discomfort of those kinds of scenarios like it doesn't seem like it takes a lot of resources to make somebody feel human no. but there's so many scenarios in which we have failed to do so yeah and in a lot of cases it's intentional right? That's the... yeah the there are other accounts from Watson's tour where there were other camps were much the, 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 the conditions among these like refugee camps for the non-combatants were like they varied so much more wildly than the other ones because mm-hmm. it was often like a, a very regional thing like the, the local community would be required to kind of support 
the refugees. And if it was in a more conservative area of France, they wouldn't because they branded them all as communists and yeah. left-wingers that they, and just outsiders. Yeah. Uh, if you were in a more left-wing area of France, um, there was support from local unions. The local governments might have been socialist and they would like try to help. There's some really, there's a really beautiful story about um, teachers' unions who apparently like single-handedly furnished a huge number of the camps with oh, like wow. teachers and like uh, equipment and like pens and pens and paper and that sort of thing for the kids and, and made mm-hmm. sure that they were being educated while yeah. they were there. And within Canada, um, the children were definitely a source, mm-hmm. like a way to draw support. Um, so a lot of the Canadian Committee to Aid Spanish Refugees material focuses on children mm-hmm. and the appeal for milk and for sponsors. There are a couple other ways in which this last section here relates to the like, cultural production of Spanish Civil War. One is, I think we have some documents on our website about the tension between the two different types of solidarity work being carried out in Canada during the 1930s. Oh, interesting. I believe that was that. Maybe I read those somewhere else, but I think they were on our website. <laughs> and they, um, there are these accounts of, of these meetings uh, with all kinds of different, like we'll call them stakeholders, uh, to use a horrible term, in the room, <laughs> talking about which way they should do the fundraising, which way they should uh, like kind of mobilize people surrounding the Spanish Civil War. And when it was clear that the like the military contribution of the international brigades was winding down, they were like pulling away from the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion. They were starting to do more refugee work, and they they thought it was really important at a certain point to split the organizations like really clearly and make sure they had nothing to do with each other in terms of those who were funding to help the MACPAPs and those who were funding mm. to help Spanish refugees. Yeah. One wanted to be seen as nonpartisan, and the other one wanted to be seen as very explicitly partisan. Yeah, and one would like the children's organization would benefit a lot more or would be able to reach a bigger audience mm-hmm. if they distance themselves that's really interesting respectability yeah was really important yeah and not wanting to be seen as as contributing to something that was pretty obviously if not explicitly a communist project like a radical left project and yeah. the other one was like no we're just here to help yeah. the children who are victims of fascism they would still use language like that but they yeah wouldn't. which is so interesting like that shift between like premature anti-fascism anti-fascism is too radical and anti-fascism as a national war effort mm-hmm. is wild to me. Yeah. Like, so wild. Today's episode was written and produced by Karina Mickelson and Kevin Levangi and supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. Our theme song is Libertad by Iriarty and Pizzoa and is available in the Free Music Archive. Our outro song was How Do You Do 1935 by Maria Dunn. As always, you can find all of our show notes on our website at SpanishCivilWar.ca slash podcast. You can get in touch with us through Twitter at CanadaSCW, or you can send us an email, and our contact info is on our website. We'll be back soon to talk about one of the following things, uh, military history with an actual military historian, Ed Cecil Smith, one of the... Canadian volunteers, databases, or Canadian Spanish Civil War novels. <laughs> so listen in. There's a train that's coming from the west. A thousand men clinging to its back. Though it's June, the nights will leave them nearly frozen. Coming through the mountain pass. Rolling in the Calgary on track. To Ottawa, their crowd.
Yeah.